0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Senator Chris Coons discusses faith and public life with Jim Wallace. Coons is Delaware's junior senator He was elected to Vice President Biden's former seat in 2010. He serves on several committees, including the Foreign Relations, Judiciary, and Ethics Committees, and is the ranking member, the top Democrat, of two subcommittees. Wallace is president and founder of Sojourners, a nonprofit faith-based organization whose mission is to put faith into action for social justice. He is a New York Times bestselling author, public theologian, speaker, and international commentator on ethics and public life. He recently served on the White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. He is the author of 11 books and the editor of Sojourner's Magazine. Here are Senator Coons and Jim Wallace.
1: Uh, Chris Coons, Senator from Delaware. Uh, it's gonna be a conversation with him and with all of you about faith and public life. Now, to start with, I know the Senator believes as I do, in the separation of church and state. Uh-huh. Just to just to uh, say that, set it aside. However, I would say that he doesn't believe, nor do I, in the segregation of moral values from public life. So this is the uh, conversation we're going to have this morning about those things. Now, I would imagine, I don't know the number, Senator, but There probably are several senators uh, who have gone to Yale Law School, uh, historically. Not many, though, went to Yale Law School and Yale Divinity School at the same time. And the senator did uh, law school and seminary at the same time and place. So maybe to start with, why did you do that? <laughs> Why a, a law student, law, law school, caring about all kinds of progressive causes uh, and you went to divinity school?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you, Jim, and um, thank you uh, to the Aspen Ideas Festival and to everybody who's here. There's a number of great friends uh, and sources of inspiration in the room, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation and thank you, uh, Jim, for being a source of inspiration to me for many years. I read Sojourners and subscribed to it and have uh, been in the audience listening to you for years. And, I'm so grateful, uh, humbled for a chance to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, I um, had a a sense of calling, a sense of the importance of faith in my life from from childhood. My parents were both um, active, practicing Christians, members of a congregation, and uh, did a lot of of volunteerism and service work uh, when I was a kid. Uh, And I don't think I I ever realized just how powerful their example was until Mm -hmm. I started uh, reflecting on it in later life. Uh, but after I finished college, uh, I went um, and worked for a number of different nonprofits. I worked for the Coalition for the Homeless uh, in New York City for Bob Hayes. I, I went to South Africa and uh, worked with Bishop Tutu in the South African Council of Churches. Uh, and uh, each of these years, I would already been admitted to Yale Law School. I really didn't want to go to law school. I just kept <laughs> getting told by my family, you have to go to law school, right? They said, what is that great uh, misrepresentation? You can do anything with a law degree. No, you can't. You could be a lawyer with a law degree. <laughs> Um, So I kept putting it off, and uh, I went and visited law school um, and was persuaded it was a great chance to really explore uh, sort of big ideas. While at law school, uh, a friend of mine who was uh, very active in uh, the prison clinic uh, came to me and said, there is this just wonderful, remarkable teacher. Uh, You have to go audit at least one class with her, Uh, and at the law school, you're allowed to take classes in any other graduate school. So I went and sat in the back, and she was amazing. Uh, She could have been talking uh, welding or riveting, and it would have been fascinating. Uh, But it was a a course on Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, and Calvin. And she managed to make these four great thinkers of the Christian tradition just fascinating. Uh, I took another course, I took another course, I took another course. I was doing better in my Div school courses than law school courses. Um, But I sort of assumed that, you know, having already been admitted to law school, that there really was a, a barrier to entry. Until eventually, the admissions dean, who was a member of my congregation in New Haven, came to me one day and said, you know, we, we do let lawyers become members of the Divinity School. Um, so I signed up and, and did a dual degree program. It was at that point, Jim, that I had a really unusual experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd been uh, quite active in the progressive uh, community in the law right. school. Yale's a very politically active mm-hmm. progressive uh, school. And a number of my uh, friends uh, and classmates reacted Uh, with a mixture of uh, horror and derision at the idea that I would want to go study this uh, Christian faith thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized as I reflected on it later that there's lots of other uh, conditions or background or orientations or inclinations I might have admitted or revealed to them that they would have celebrated and welcomed. Uh, But a number of them really uh, uh, shunned me and uh, shut me out and uh, almost disowned me as a friend. Uh, And that caused a lot of reflection for me, uh, that this progressive community that was so welcoming and so inclusive and so celebratory of difference was really not open. Hmm. Uh, I had trained as a chemist, as an undergraduate. A number of folks said to me, how can you, a person trained in science, possibly believe in all this hocus-pocus and mythology that's caused so much pain? And as I tried to reconcile with some of my friends uh, and, and made some effort with them, I realized a number of them were acting from a place of hurt themselves that in their own childhood, in their own faith experiences, they would had really negative experiences. And so they had nothing positive uh, to see Mm -hmm. about uh, faith and its role in the world and in their lives. So in the end, I know this is a very long answer to a simple question, why did you go to Divinity School? Um, I I learned a great deal uh, from my time at Divinity School and my interactions with my classmates at law school. Um, I found it informed uh, my work uh, with the homeless in New Haven. Uh, I was an intern with uh, Downtown Cooperative Ministry in New Haven. Uh, And it was a wonderful opportunity for me to really study with a wide range of people uh, because it's a divinity school, not a seminary. So there's people at Yale from all sorts of different uh, faith traditions. And it was a wonderful opportunity to really debate uh, and learn uh, and study the foundations of of faith in the modern world.
1: I'm curious about their reaction. These are Mm -hmm. progressive allies Mm -hmm. working with you on homelessness issues Mm -hmm. or South African issues. Mm -hmm. And they had such a, a strong negative response. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also gave a speech recently to the Secular Society. The Secular Coalition. Coalition. Yeah. Uh, and E.J. Dion wrote a great column in the Post about about his speech, which you should take a look, look at. So how, how, how do you understand the depth of their response? Sometimes, you know, I've spent a lot of my life working against religious fundamentalism, mm-hmm. but there's also a kind of secular fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what you kind of ran into. How do you explain that? Then how did you walk into the secular coalition? And maybe they were sort of, you know, what's this guy going to? But it was a great conversation there that you had.
2: It was a great conversation. I appreciated the invitation of a dear friend of mine, Woody Kaplan, who urged me to come and spend some time with a room full of folks who represent a wide range of the humanist and secularist and atheist. Uh, organizations in our country, uh, to say to them, look, we have a great deal in common. Uh, we have a great deal in common in terms of the things that we would like to see happen, the changes we'd like to see uh, in politics and policy and in our country. Uh, and we have a great division. Uh, we have this uh, deep suspicion and difference uh, between each other. Uh, as I referenced uh, in talking to my own uh, classmates and friends, uh, I realized for quite a few of them, um, they, they were profoundly ignorant of the, the range uh, of views and traditions uh, in the faith community. Uh, their own exposures had really only been uh, to very dogmatic and, and right. often fundamentalist views. Uh, and particularly on LGBT issues, uh, they had an, a number of them had had really difficult, really harsh experiences. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember one conversation with a visitor to the Divinity School uh, who had been active uh, in the Assemblies of God as a young man uh, and, and came to realize over a period of time that uh, he was homosexual. And he described uh, being literally tricked by his family to come back to a healing service where they surrounded him and attempted ah. to cast out of him the demon of homosexuality. Right. Um, and just how that felt for him mm-hmm. and his um, real um, sense of separation and violation from his own family and faith tradition. Um, a number of exchanges and stories like that really helped me understand where they were coming from. And, and they're not seeing any of the positives, any of the... Um, impact that I had been raised uh, knowing about, Uh, Jim, as you well know, virtually every major positive social movement in American history, um, from the abolition movement Mm -hmm. to the civil rights movement, from the labor movement to the environmental movement, um, has had a critical uh, foundation in faith communities, Jewish and Christian communities that have been sources of uh, energy and of inspiration and of motivation. Um, and it's not, this, is, this is not a, a debate about equivalency, you know, you don't stack up the civil rights movement against the Inquisition and say, you know, where's it all balance out. Um, the challenge is to recognize uh, that for those who have a real sense of distance uh, from faith, uh, we have to recognize a history of, of separation and of distance and of pain. Um, but we also have to have a better informed conversation about faith in this country. Right. Uh, the breadth of misinformation and misunderstanding is huge, and the sense that the only people who serve in public office uh, who are practicing Christians and Jews are those who are very conservative right. is, I think, a very misleading one and a very unconstructive one in our modern
1: politics. Well, that's the political tape, mm-hmm. you know. That's the, and I think uh, often people on the conservative side and the liberal side want to suggest all religion is right wing. Mm -hmm. Both sides want to sometimes do that. So when there's a a person of progressive faith, they're not sure quite what to do with this. I remember I knew President Obama back when he was a state senator in, in, uh, in Illinois. And he had an adult conversion to his Christian faith. And the first time we talked a long time ago, he said, you know, Jim, I'm a Christian now, but I don't go along with all this right-wing stuff am i really a christian i mean is there a different way to be a christian than all this right-wing stuff and and i think uh he's had to really find a way through all of that but his speech to the secretary is worth reading and when i read it my response was this uh it's similar if i might say to how white people we who are white people often react to anger and hurt and pain from people of color. And we're worried about the tone of their critique of us. We're worried about their tone. And we don't understand that when people of color share their pain and hurt and anger with us at the way they've been treated, it's really a gift. Mm -hmm. It's a trust that they would share that. So people of faith, the kind of progressive mm-hmm. faith we, we, we believe in, we gotta not be so defensive mm-hmm. and listen to how people like mm-hmm. this young man who was just brutalized by mm-hmm. his parents, how when they share that pain and hurt and trust, we have to take it in, listen to that, mm-hmm. and be willing to, 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 to honor or hear that pain mm-hmm. and then have a conversation about a different way to be personal faith.
2: I agree. Recon- reconciliation requires uh, both repentance and a respect uh, for the other and for right. their history and for their, for their pain and for their, their difficulties. Yeah. And so uh, to simply exhort uh, secularists that, no, no, you need to be more like us or listen to us or believe like we do, that, that, that is an, an entirely unconstructive posture. Uh, to instead begin yeah. by saying, um, you can be Uh, a good, you can be a great, you can be a leading person in this country without religious faith. Uh, One of, I think, the real challenges of people of faith in public office is to, at the same time, um, share our foundations, share our backgrounds, our motivations, what inspires us, what moves us, uh, so that the people we want to hire us, the voters of our states uh, and districts, understand where we're coming from, uh, but fight fiercely for a politics um, of respect and inclusion that say in a secular democracy um, it is not my role to advance, it is not appropriate for me to mm-hmm. advance any particular faith. Uh, and there has to be as much room for and respect for those who come to leadership uh, on important issues uh, out of their own ethical um, humanist or secular traditions as any faith tradition. And that's, that's a difficult thing, yeah. to, that's a boundary that's worth policing constantly because in ways both loud and, and, and quiet, in, in ways both sort of direct and indirect, we send a lot of messages about who counts, who's included, who matters. Uh, and so how we interact with uh, our constituents, our citizens, how we celebrate, uh, yeah. how we memorialize, uh, makes a big difference.
1: Uh, and the good point you made about most of our social movements mm-hmm. have had people of faith as an animating force there, but it was never just people of faith. Right. Never all those it. movements are all kinds of other people too. So in those movements, you've got to learn how to do just what you said, how to respect and trust each other. In some ways, you know, when violence is coming at you, you someone's got to put your life in the hands of people who are not, you know, people of faith like you are. They're a different faith or secular or even anti-faith. But you learn to put your life in their hands too. You know. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you and Obama uh, both talk about is uh, that it's okay to be a person of faith and still have doubt. Absolutely. Obama says that and people don't often listen to how how deep that really is. And you say that too. There's two kinds of religion. One is is leading us to certainty, certainty. The other leads us to deeper reflection. Mm -hmm. And you really talk about the latter. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. How does this, when you're a senator trying to figure out what to do, how does your faith take you to a deeper reflection on the issues?
2: Well, first, um, if there's anything um, that would drive you to your knees in prayer, it would Uh, be uh, the responsibilities and challenges of uh, making the kinds of decisions mm -hmm. uh, that we're called on uh, to make, the sorts of votes we have to take, the sorts of uh, actions and decisions that a president has to take. Um, If you're a person of a faith perspective, the 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 magnitude of some of the things we're challenged with is truly humbling um first second um that process i described as i was um, auditing first a class and then a second class and then a third class i had my whole life i'd had this assumption that you don't belong in ministry you don't belong in divinity school unless you have an absolutely unshakable faith <laughs> you wake up every morning knowing speaking to listening to you know, communing with you know the divine and I thought, well, I don't belong in that camp. I, I've got a lot of doubts. i got a lot of, I got a lot of questions. And so I was just enjoying the study and the reflection and really getting engaged. But I, I kept thinking, well, certainly I'm not, I'm not that guy. Yeah. And the more I talked to classmates and the more I talked to colleagues and the more I went home and talked to the yeah. pastors I really admired at home, the more I realized um, that, that faith without doubt is extremism. And faith without doubt is not faith. Um, faith without doubt is... Uh, the sort of fundamentalism that, yeah. that leads to uh, unacceptably extreme actions. It is exactly that shared human experience of daily wrestling with doubt um, that makes it faith and that makes it, um, that makes someone uh, who is willing to talk about their doubt uh, more engaging and instructive and more helpful uh, to other people who are, what, human. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, right in the Gospels, there's uh, one of the disciples who had Christ before him, Thomas, yeah. is... Famously known as doubting. doubting and if you, if you don't recognize and celebrate and engage in doubt, um, then you're not, I think, honoring what, what our faith means. Second, it, this is all about interpreting texts. When you go to a divinity school or graduate school, it's all about taking some historic text, whether it's the, you know, the, the, the Bible or the, the Talmud, uh, whether it's the Pentateuch, whether, whatever it is that you're working through, you're working through a text. Uh, and like the Constitution, there's a lot of ways to read a text. The Constitution is relatively concise compared to right, the, the Bible or the Torah. Uh, and you can spend a lot of time, a lot of time arguing uh, over millennia about what specific passages mean. And I found the more I really dove into texts that I thought I knew, and I thought I knew their, their historical antecedents, I, I, I didn't know anything. So I finished three years of, of, of study concluding that I knew less specifically, less concretely, about word for word than when I started. If that doesn't produce in you a sense of humility, I don't know what will. Um, so approaching the text with humility, approaching the experience of faith with humility, is I think our key watchword. And as we engage as a nation with other uh, nations and peoples and groups that are inspired by um, faith or competing worldviews, just beginning with some humility about the certainty with which we know our own scriptural traditions uh, is, I think, an important uh, posture for us uh, globally. I also find that as I, as I work with other senators, um, this approach of humility yeah. uh, is key. If you walk in the room assuming that you have the answers on everything and that uh, the other man or woman you're about to negotiate with on is really ill-informed and your job really is to persuade them of the rightness of your view, oddly, that doesn't go very well. It doesn't get you very far. Right. Um, and I found in the Senate that um, the range of faith traditions is really impressive, and the, the depth and the spirituality of a number of my colleagues, most of my colleagues, is is truly striking. And so, one of the best experiences I've had as a senator is a weekly prayer breakfast uh, that our chaplain uh, convenes, and it's senators only. There's no there's no you know staff or lobbyists or visitors or anything. It's really just senators, uh, and every week. There's a hymn, there's prayer, there's a little reflection, but then there's 15 or 20 minutes of one of the senators, Republican or Democrat, and we go back and forth, um, stands up and just shares from his or her personal life experience. And I've learned remarkable, powerful, moving things about my colleagues from this.
1: Not Republicans, though.
2: Yes, right? Oh, yes, Republicans. Uh, in fact, I'd say more, it's more often than not, it's Republicans where I come away just really struck. Uh, about the depth and it's power. There's a deeper their
1: level of conversation going on. And,
2: and I got to tell you, it is really hard to rhetorically throw a punch at someone on the floor later okay. in the day when you began the morning holding their hands in prayer. And whether it's uh, Ben Cardin, uh, or it's uh, Cory Booker, uh, or it's uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, or it's Ted Cruz, uh, what I've heard from these colleagues really has affected and changed me.
1: The, that's the word I wanted to pick, pick up on. That you always t- you know, doubt, but humility. Mm-hmm. That's a critical. And we both have worked with Desmond Tutu before. So here's a little story that you probably haven't heard because I just uh, saw it years ago in the 80s when I was there hiding out in black townships and fighting apartheid with him. One day, he uh, was there for six weeks. At the end, I realized I hadn't done an interview with him yet for Sojourners. My staff would kill me because we were doing strategy and all that. So he agreed to it. So two black seminarians took me to where he lives at Bishop's Court. They never met him. And they were just thrilled they were going to meet the great man. So we're in his little parlor, and they're just on the edge of their seats. In walks Archbishop Desmond Tutu, sweatshirt, blue jeans, and slippers, <coughs> carrying the tea tray for them. And they're on their knees, one kisses a ring. Oh, Bishop, we just, we've always wanted, he says, thank you. Uh, milk or sugar? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we just, we just, uh, uh, thank you, I'm holding the teacher, it's heavy. Uh, milk or, or sugar? sugar. <laughs> and they almost couldn't allow themselves to be served mm-hmm. by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. But in, in the great people of faith, there really is a, a humility. And there's, you know, uh, King, the kitchen table, the kitchen table death threat night mm-hmm. that took him to a whole deeper place. And it was doubt and fear. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're, we're allowed to do as people of faith. And then you can do that with Across the Aisle, which is so polarized. It's more than ever people would think polarized now. Yet you have these weekly sessions mm-hmm. across the aisle about, about faith. Mm-hmm.
2: These are weekly sessions that draw on some of the greatest strengths um, yeah. in, our, in our wide-ranging faith experiences. Yeah. Um, I also think we can't let today go without reflecting on what just happened in Charleston. Um, One of the people I've gotten to know uh, in my current role who reminds me of Desmond Tutu more than anyone else uh, is John Lewis, uh, the congressman from Georgia, um, who uh, has he leads an annual civil rights uh, pilgrimage uh, and invites members of Congress to come. Uh, This year was the 50th anniversary of uh, the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Uh, And I think a lot of why... Uh, that march was so galvanizing uh, for America, for our nation, um, was the peacefulness with which the marchers met the violence, the brutality uh, of the state troopers and the the deputies uh, who met them at the other side of the bridge, their uh, nonviolence and their faithfulness in the face of violence and oppression. Um, And John Lewis is just like Desmond in that he is an unbelievably gracious, humble, other-centered Um, funny, positive, engaging man, uh, even to those who have hurt him and even to those who who had done him wrong. Um, And this long tradition globally of demonstrating an an unbelievable and inhuman uh, grace and forgiveness I think was given um, new strength and voice um, in the actions of the members of the AME Church in Charleston um, who, having just lost family members to a brutal murder, um, found... um, from their faith experience and tradition, the strength to go to his arraignment, look him in the eyes, and say, you have taken from me something I will never have back. You have wounded me deeply and and permanently, but I forgive you, and I will pray for you. That response, uh, I have heard from uh, friends and colleagues from around the world, um, really is something that has elevated the whole conversation about reconciliation, about forgiveness, uh, and about what we now must do Uh, to be faithful to their exceptional acts of grace.
1: And there apparently was no plan to do Mm -hmm. that ahead of time. They walked into the court, and here's this 21-year-old white supremacist who was welcomed into Mm -hmm. a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and and after an hour of listening, Mm -hmm. shot and killed nine people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And they responded, out of a faith, I can't imagine a human response not out of faith, yet they expect and require justice as well. So the test of our honoring the Charleston families is are we gonna not just be repelled by this explicit, overt, horrible act of visible white supremacy, but are we gonna deal now with a criminal justice system? Mm and restoration of voting rights Mm -hmm. and uh all the things that finally are the structure of implicit racism in our society Mm -hmm. but they're they've taken this to a whole new tone a whole new Mm -hmm. level of a national conversation i think Mm -hmm. which is a very powerful thing but in 2015 in june uh, we saw the black people in america uh, there's nowhere in america that they're safe even in their own Churches and sacred sanctuaries. What does that mean for what kind of country we we want to be? Mm -hmm. We 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 ran into each other on the bridge at Selma that John Lewis did did this year, Mm -hmm. and uh, CT Vivian was there, Mm -hmm. who also marched with John, and we got to march with the foot soldiers who were there fifty years ago. They're in walkers and wheelchairs, and CT came to our conference last year, last week, and he he blessed the Ferguson young people. Mm -hmm. And these South African leaders, the new ones who came, here's this great 80-year-old preacher blessing these young leaders who were just all all in tears. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're in the middle of that history. It shaped your life. And then you're in the Senate every day, facing extreme partisan, as they say, gridlock and all that. So how does your faith sort of sustain you day by day, and how does it change your perspective? And how does it sometimes make you break from the political categories you're expected to to, to hold?
2: Um, well, first, the, the, the combination of the, the humility we've talked about and the experiences I've had um, makes me insistent on taking risks, on trying my best to make change, uh, on working with a, with a fierceness, a determination that... Right. Um, I think would otherwise be inexplicable. Um, Second, I have to have hope. Uh, Hope is a choice and an action. Uh, Hope is an attitude. um, And I have to believe that the Senate will get better. Uh, I will tell you, the first five years have uh, not been an exercise in in (laughs) optimism. Um, It is is not a rational response uh, to the dysfunctionality of the Senate to say, I want to run again. I want to serve longer. This is great. Um, and that that comes from uh, a sense uh, of blessing and of opportunity. Yeah. Um, but last is the importance of really respecting my colleagues, uh, of going in and sitting down and recognizing that um, if, if I have an attitude that they're accidental senators, that they're not really here for a purpose, right. that they really don't belong here, that they're ahistorical and that their worldview is just wrong and it's just a matter of time until they get drummed out of here, then I should expect nothing Yep. different from them, except a the view of me, that I'm yeah. an accidental senator, and, yeah. you know, but for the witch, uh, you know, Mike Castle would be in the seat today. Uh, instead, I try to go in with an aspect uh, of humility and recognizing that their state saw something in them, um, that the wisdom of the electorate, uh, if you respect democracy, means that there is some purpose for every mm-hmm. one of us to be there. And there's something good in every one of my colleagues. There's something positive we can work on together. Uh, And I think if you if you approach it with that attitude, you can find allies and colleagues across a very broad range. Uh, And so, you know, I have bills I've co-sponsored with folks from David Vitter to Ted Cruz, from uh, Rand Paul to Mike Mm -hmm. Enzi, from uh, Orrin Hatch to Marco Rubio. Um, But it it takes persistence and it takes hope and it takes a positive attitude. Um, I think you could get to this same orientation in place without a faith perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a person who's just ethical and, yeah. and well-motivated mm-hmm. to do it. But for me personally,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, I think without my uh, religious faith, I, I, yeah. I would have given up on this long ago.
1: <laughs> let's open this up. Now, I, I'm not assuming uh, that we're all people of faith or any faith. And In fact, I teach a course on faith and politics, and I did it at Harvard. And I used to say, um, let's go around the room and say who we are. And I remember there was a black church student who said, I'm here because I'm a boy. This is... Killing School of Government, born again, Bible-believing, follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm here because this course, we have a Christian professor that's going to give glory to God, hallelujah. And the woman next to him who was next, we could all hear her say, oh, shit. (laughs) And so she said, I'm a lesbian, feminist, agnostic. I'm here to give religion one last chance. So they became good friends by the time. So if you're anywhere between those two, you're welcome to ask questions of of the the Senate. Yes, sir. I'm very curious, uh, in light of this really informed and enlightening dialogue, how you would address the subject that seems to have been lost in the extraordinary progress of gay rights in the last five years, and that's women's rights. How do you see that playing out over the next five years? We don't want to sit around just speculating about who the next Supreme Court Justice will be. Mm -hmm. How do you see this playing out politically? Because I can't think of an issue which has people more polarized for a longer period of time.
2: I look for steady progress towards a country where Americans of of all backgrounds, men and women, gay and straight, all different races, all different... uh, faith traditions of all different regions of our country, all different economic classes, have an opportunity to participate and contribute. Um, And we are making steady but too slow progress. So if you look at the Senate of the United States, for example, um, from when I got there to today in just five years, um, the number of committees uh, that are chaired by women and led by women and the differences in how those committees function, uh, if you just look at the functionality, to pick one, of the budget committee, Uh, in the last Congress. Uh, Patty Murray really brought some strength and capability to it in ways um, that were sorely needed, uh, for example. Um, Women continue to demonstrate um, an ability and a capacity and a strength in the Senate uh, that I think uh, any of us who happen to be male senators uh, would be fools to miss. Um, Whether it's the Supreme Court, CEO suites, um, governorships, um, women are steadily advancing in our country. Uh, but there remains a lot of work to do, uh, particularly in STEM fields, particularly at the highest levels of leadership. Um, there remain um, clear barriers. Um, there are policy things we can and should do uh, to make it easier to sustain family life and to support those um, who are trying to be successful in both career and family rearing, to sustain um, those who choose to be solely dedicated to family rearing. There's a lot of things we can do to make a work-life balance uh, better in this country. Um, and there's things we need to be focusing on about how poverty and female headed households correlate and how that really impacts the ability of women to contribute wholly right. um, to society. That's just a, a, a quick touch on a couple of different topics. Um, so I remain an optimist, um, but I am frankly uh, very much optimistic that uh, the next uh, presidency in the next couple of years will bring significant progress in women's rights.
1: There was an interview with Bill and Melinda Gates about their billionaires uh, project. And uh, the interviewer said to them both, what's the one thing of all that you do, one thing that could change the world the most? And Melinda didn't wait for Bill to answer. She said, empower women and girls, the one thing. So not just inside the Senate, but in all of our work, that's, I think, the one thing the data shows that would change things more than any other single thing. Uh, Yes?
2: TO to JIM'S POINT, I I SPENT FOUR YEARS CHAIRING THE AFRICA SUBCOMMITTEE, uh, AND DID A NUMBER OF TRIPS AND HEARINGS AND ISSUES. NOTHING CHANGES um, THE OUTCOMES uh, FOR FAMILIES, FOR COUNTRIES IN THE DEVELOPING WORLD, LIKE EMPOWERING WOMEN, uh, AND and A NUMBER OF VERY SMART, TARGETED INTERVENTIONS THAT MELINDA AND BILL GATES ARE LEADING, MAKING A HUGE DIFFERENCE IN FIGHTING POVERTY AND CREATING OPPORTUNITY. Sure. Uh, Senator, in the
0: article that was referenced earlier by Dion where you are quoted talking about a central tenant of secular government is this humility and doubt. So we've celebrated, I think in the country, a long
2: tradition. Madison Hamilton goes all the way back to the Federalist Papers. If you could shift the same dangers of certitude that you talked about in faith, and you think about
1: the, sort of, if you will, the viral infection of very intense ideology in our politics today and a lack of civil discourse, Mm -hmm. a commitment to the pluralistic conversation, sort of a fear of
2: real conversation. And, you know, if we live under this tyranny of certitude and it infects the politics, could you talk a little bit about how did we come to that? And, you know, people talk about gerrymandering and primaries and extremism and money. And I just wonder if you could shift that same uh, faith reflection to a more secular sense of how you manage this danger of certitude
3: in, in our government today.
2: Uh, that's a great question, and I, I, I wish I could give you an answer that's worthy of the question, but I will work through uh, a better answer over time. Uh, my gut response um, is that, frankly, certitude um, an absolute certainty that your interpretation, whether it's of the Constitution uh, or of Scripture, uh, is easier. Uh, it's cleaner. It's, it's more bumper sticker. It, it gives you a platform that you can convey uh, with ferocity. Yeah. And a posture of compromise and of humility and of recognition that there is some of the right and wrong in all of us and in all our positions is grayer and is, is cloudier and is more difficult. And if what you're doing is campaigning, it is a lot easier to campaign in strong, simple, strident tones that identify the right and the wrong, that sh- separates the sheep and the goats and says, This is who's right and this is who's wrong. This is what's destroying America and this is where we need to go. Folks tend to follow that. Uh, in a world where there is more and more of a disaggregated media, where there's lots of competing voices and cacophony, where there's increasing sort of anger and frustration over uh, economic opportunity and a sense of sort of loss of place and role. Um, simple messages carry farther and carry more fiercely um, those who really want to see compromise which is the only way our system works I mean the structure the founders set up it is so much easier to stop something than it is to do something in our Congress mm-hmm. and the dysfunction really begins there it, it's intentional so if our nation rewards the more extreme voices and those who don't compromise then the gridlock is an, is an almost inevitable outcome the more we elect people who solely Um, turn to the strident, uh, the more we'll have a result of of a lack of progress. And that's true on the left and the right. Those are structural issues. Could you get to some of the fixes that might remedy that structural? Um, Investment by voters uh, of time and energy in championing and rewarding uh, folks who actually deliver results rather than polemic. Um, Investment in organizations um, that drive towards the center. Uh, and that don 't simply recognize the extremes, uh, a recognition in uh, nonprofit and advocacy groups uh, that sort of ginning up your national base by demonizing uh, into two dimensional cartoons those who are on the opposite side uh, may gin up your return for you know this month 's email appeals, uh, but is ultimately destructive to the possibility of progress there 's a lot of different ways I mean I think this is a fairly simple point, you know, play well with others, Um, you know, don't bite your classmates, you know, put the toys back in the bin. I mean, you know, kindergarten level stuff teaches us that you you, you gotta respect the other playmates in the sandbox and um, we've got a national political culture that is is destructively pulling that apart. I see the consequences of this every time I visit with or hear from foreign heads of state or members of national assemblies Mm -hmm. from developing countries. They are increasingly doubtful that our model right. of deliberative right. democracy, mm-hmm. a truly open society, is mm-hmm. the best model, the one that works. They are increasingly listening to these autocratic models, whether Russia or China, and say, well, this is much more efficient. You don't have all this messy you know, media and opinions and politics. You just do stuff. So I think there, there are both foreign and domestic, short-term and long-term reasons for us to hear this call towards responsible centrism.
1: Just to underscore that the media plays the role of the gladiator ring. That's what they want everything to be dealt with. And now they say, well, we give people what they want. Well, you know, theologically, human beings, we have our better angels and our lesser angels. And when the media is appealing to always the, the lesser, it, purport, it, it makes that kind of politics. So I think the media's got a lot to do with this. But I also think there's a hunger underneath uh, among your colleagues. I mean, outside in the faith community, we we get calls at night from from his colleagues of both parties who want to have a different kind of conversation. And the faith community, rather than just taking sides and being the partisan chaplains of left and right, have to create some safe spaces for that to occur. I was talking to... we're gonna start a radio show in the fall. And uh, I said, you know, for a lot of people, I think civility is kind of sexy now. I mean, people want, uh, and they say, oh, that's a, that's a great theme for your show, <laughs> civility is sexy. But I think people are hungry for a kind of civility. And when they see a senator like Chris Coons, they see that in him. So his colleagues on the other side see that, and they trust that. But I think voters, you know, they see a kind of an integrity, of conversation that I think our better angels really want to see, so it 's what you 're appealing to, I think that really makes a d- d- difference yes
4: thank you Ruth messenger, um, President and CEO of American Jewish World Service, these are two of my heroes on stage, and this is an opportunity to thank Senator Coons for his extraordinary work on the Africa subcommittee. I wanted to comment on two things that were said: one, the last discussion with you. I just want to say it is astounding how few of the younger people, the same group that that, um, Jim is targeting in terms of new faith, don't know what you and I would call basic civics. I work with activists in the Jewish community trying to move legislation with the help of Senator Coons and other people like that. I literally have talked to, I think of one woman, a 28 year old, clearly upper class, new partner, new associate in the New York law firm who didn't know she was able to talk to her representatives. Now, it's, it's hard to believe, but that's not uncommon. So the notion of getting involved, thinking about elections, never not voting, looking at the nuance, really going beyond everything that you're talking about that does polarize, I think is critical if we're not going to lose out to, as you said, every other government structure that looks more appealing. Senator, I love your patience on the issue of women and women's rights, but it's an appalling situation and we all need to address it and not on this panel because there are just two of you, but yesterday, those of us who watched the Supreme Court panel, which was brilliant, and which Senator Coons was on, was 10 men discussing the changes in the Supreme Court, particularly on two issues of critical importance to women. So uh, it was really rather staggering. So it's starting at home, it's raising those issues. You talked about women chairing committees, I couldn't agree with you more, but let's just be clear that 20% of the Congress is women. There are countries in Africa that are doing us better by a long shot, and we have a Congress that for the fifth time now is not gonna pass the International Violence Against Women Act, so we have a long way to go. We
1: do, yeah. Thank you. Microphone right there. Well, here, here. Here, Uh, here.
4: (laughs) I have two
2: maybe simple questions. One is, uh, you talked about your religious meetings in the Senate. And I'm wondering, I know you learn from it, I'm wondering whether you feel that the other side learns from it as well and takes from that. That's one question. The second question is, you were alluding to the ability to have uh, uh, more of a dialogue publicly uh, with evangelicals or extremists. Uh, I would welcome that. I would welcome that even in a forum like this or others where there was an opportunity because we 're almost talking to ourselves in this in this environment, and we really need to talk to those who don 't agree with us and what we 're doing so that 's right first, um, just to respond to your question um, yes i 'm convinced that um, this uh, weekly reflection is an opportunity that that challenges all of us uh, from whatever background. Some of the conversations i 've had. Uh, with other senators uh, following those breakfasts really revealing um, it's one of the very few um, to use your phrase safe spaces that exists yeah. um, right. really there's a gym and there's this weekly prayer breakfast and there's travel overseas and other than that um, our lives as senators we are just constantly harried by different mm-hmm. you know lobbyists and media and staff and um, we run around like crazed weasels going from committee hearing to meeting to speech and I once said to an incoming senator, Cory Booker actually, if you were to try and devise a system to prevent a hundred allegedly capable and bright people from ever having a complete thought or a real conversation, the Senate, the current Senate would be a perfect mechanism to accomplish that goal. We're wildly overprogrammed. We serve on way too many uh, committees and caucuses, and we spend too much of our time in other parts of the country rather than together. And this focusing uh, time together every week, I think, produces uh, a moment of openness, and it, it, it is, it, it's taken um, some time to build trust, I think, but um, the number of senators who come and really share things about their lives and their values and their views um, that, that is unusual and risky, that explains things about themselves, uh, is really impressive. And then the conversations I've had with folks really uh, from the far end of the political spectrum uh, afterwards about, well, how could you believe this and where did this really happen and how did that affect you? have really been the openings uh, to great relationships and partnerships. Mm-hmm. I-, I used to hear when I was much younger and Senator Biden would come home to Delaware and oh, my good friend Orrin Hatch and my great friend. I, I just thought that was, right? He's not kidding. Um, I would say Orrin Hatch is a good friend. Johnny Isaacson is a real friend of mine. And this has happened over time with a lot of getting to know each other and taking some risks. And to the point you made earlier, a majority of the senators currently in this system want it to change there are lots of forces both that we are responsible for and in the country that keep pulling us apart but we don't enjoy the vast majority of senators don't enjoy being sort of two-dimensional cardboard cutout figures screaming on fox and msnbc and talking past each other Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are lots of groups trying to figure out how to get how to get past this badly gridlocked environment most of us get to the Senate because we have some record of accomplishment of being you know governors or mayors or heads of businesses or and and it, it's not like you know it's so great and beautiful and wonderful that I mean it takes about six weeks to figure out uh, what are we really doing here I mean I talked to Corey before he ran for the Senate and said you will have a more fulfilling experience in life as a mayor running a city than you will in your first Mm -hmm. six months or even six years as a senator. The reason to do it is because the scope of what we touch on is so huge and the potential of the institution is so great. And our country can't succeed with a Congress that is this gridlocked, it can't. We are a major barrier to progress on dozens of issues. And so we need more good people with executive experience, willing to listen to folks from the other side, willing to come with some humility. Um, And I do think, to your question, um, that the folks who participate learn a great deal um, from, from all political perspectives.
1: Okay, I, I want some younger person to, to, be, to be thinking about some, younger people are thinking, thinking eh, I'm just too cynical about this mm-hmm. politics. But you're not going not to raise the question. So if you're a young person who's just feeling cynical about politics, I'd like you to think about framing a question to the, to the senator, because that's a, that's a real deal among young people who are not voting and being cynical cynical so think about that if you're younger
3: Uh, you started out by saying that you both believe in separation of church and state and i'm so glad you said that before you start because otherwise i would be very upset if that is true what about the um, issue of choice because that has become a religious issue in the senate and the congress and it's very disturbing because if there's separation of church and state, the woman's body and her decisions are up to her and her doctor and perhaps her significant other or her spouse, but definitely not the government, not the Senate. So where do you stand on that? And are you willing to fight for that, Senator? <laughs> My friend.
2: Um, thank you. That's, um, that's been a source of some real difficulty and conflict and pain with Uh, a broader circle of my um, constituents, uh, colleagues, friends. Uh, I am a pro-choice senator. I'm someone who's worked very hard to be on a whole range of issues, both domestic and foreign, um, an advocate for um, reproductive choice, uh, for um, access to contraception, for access to a full range of health options, and whether it's fighting for the Affordable Care Act and the significant range uh, of options that it provides uh, to women in the United States. Uh, or in how we advocate family planning uh, internationally. Uh, I do think that being a pro-choice senator also fits with my faith. There are a significant number of Delawareans who vigorously disagree with me and let me know that on a regular basis. Uh, And that's one of the more difficult conversations because um, for folks who really profoundly believe that that is an immoral taking of life, um, they can't tolerate having the government in any way support it um, and, and seek its criminalization. And we just disagree. I mean, we just fundamentally disagree on that point. Um, and I have no difficulty saying that there's a wide range of inspired, religiously inspired moral views in this country um, that our political structure doesn't recognize and doesn't embrace. And this is one where, regardless of whether uh, your reason for being anti-choice is religiously based or ethically based, um, I'm on the other side of that, and I would rather allow individuals to make a well-informed choice on their
3: own and control their own reproductive choices. Maybe we need to talk more about uh, separation of church and state and, and live by that, because I think that's a safer place to go. If it's a separation of church and state, you're going to say, fine, do what you want religiously in your own home, in your community, whatever you want. But this is the government and a separation of church and state. It's a very difficult, but let, let's be clear, the alternative isn't not
2: just a secular government but an amoral government that is, that is indifferent to the moral consequences of our actions around the world and here at home. Um, all of us have a foundation um, for what we try and do in life, whether it's um, ethical or religious, whether it's derived from a faith tradition or it's derived from a sense of values. Um, we don't support just do whatever you want anytime anywhere that's why we have criminal laws Um, that's why we have regulations that's why we take actions to promote public health and safety Um, and and policing that boundary uh, between the sources of inspiration that drive us into common action to do all the things that i think we would agree are good like preventing child labor or preventing pollution of the environment or uh, preventing um, you know wage oppression there's a wide range of things most of the actions that led to those changes in our country uh, were inspired by religious activists, uh, you know, who marched in the streets and said, we should end child labor. It was no less valid uh, because a lot of the organizing for civil rights or for labor rights had its foundation in a faith community. And I, I, I can't disrespect the sincerity of religious belief that motivates many um, to oppose reproductive choice. But I can disagree and say that on this issue, um, I I don't think that we should be embracing that view of life and and conception. Uh, But I don't think you can simply say, oh, this is a separation of church and state issue, and that ends the conversation. Trust me, this is a conversation I think will be with us for a very long time.
1: And the polarization prevents finding there are, on even these toughest issues, this isn't our topic today, some more common ground places Mm -hmm. we could go. Like supporting low-income women economically really reduces the abortion rate, mm-hmm. and so uh, without criminalizing criminalizing a woman's choice, which I don't support either, there are all kinds of things you could do to to support women in difficult, desperate situations, which the the right doesn't ever want to do and talk about. So it's a polarized conversation.
2: Well, to be fair, there 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 are senators um, on the religious right who are willing to talk about promoting adoption and promoting uh, programs that fight poverty in order to provide better opportunity right. for women. Not as many as I would like. Right. That would be a more productive conversation. Um, but having a posture of humility and respect also means walking in the door recognizing that my strongly held views aren't necessarily the, the end of the conversation.
1: It's an interesting, response to, to the papal encyclical on the environment from some people on the right saying the pope, what the Pope should be in, in the business of talking about economics and climate change and talking about, you know, applying faith to public life when some of the same people have been doing that for years on issues like abortion. So it's a very, it's a very polarized conversation. Uh, time for two more minutes. This is a great conversation. Yes, uh, please, here and then over here. Hi, I'm not a younger person, but I I have a 23- and a 24-year-old, and I think their question for you would be, um, or their concern, might be that there are a lot of great people in Congress um, and a lot of good intentions, but that those good intentions get trumped by um, moneyed interests and lobbyists, and I think that creates some hopelessness among them. And I'm wondering what your comments are about that.
2: Two things. Um, Does money influence politics? Absolutely. Uh, Pervasively, uh, corrosively, and in ways that are pernicious. Um, Is that the end of the conversation? No, it's not. Uh, I have seen senators, despite their strong political interests and their strong financial interests going the other way, make abrupt about-face changes on fairly basic issues that define their careers based on advocacy by people very close to them, people who they respect or people who they value. Um, And I can give you a chapter and verse, but, you know, for example, um, there was a a tragic mass shooting uh, in Connecticut uh, within days. Several of my colleagues who had been, you know, A-rated, NRA, um, pro-gun advocates uh, for their whole adult lives, and and it was sort of one of their core identifying uh, issues in their successful campaigns for governor, for senator, changed their positions partly because of conversations with family members, partly because of uh, advocacy by individuals, and partly by just their um, confronting the, the horror of what had happened. Uh, I think in this Charleston moment, we also have an opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to stop and reflect on, on what's happening in race in America, what's happening with the intersection of violence and poverty and race in this country, uh, and take some bolder steps. Uh, most of the folks I serve with are good people, and don't like feeling that the outcome of their votes is determined by uh, who gives them contributions or support. And, in fact, on a, on a few occasions, if you know what's really going on, we'll, we'll cast a vote directly against the interests of those who have so long supported them just to demonstrate their free will and their capacity to do the right thing. Um, you have to continue to believe in that possibility. We also have to work harder to fix our campaign finance system. Uh, I, I do think that Citizens United is having a cumulative negative effect. I do think that there's too much money in politics, uh, and that, frankly, uh, we ought to be more open uh, to taking risks and to hearing from the whole range of folks that we represent. That's our job, is to listen to our constituents, uh, and to take risks uh, that are really in the long-term better interest of our country.
1: tell your 23- and 24-year-old that two things impact politics. Money is one. The other is movements. Social movements impact policy all the movements the senator's talking about. And 23- and 24-year-olds are, are better at starting movements than giving big, big, big checks. So that's what they, they can do. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for your, for your questions. Um, yeah, let's give the senator a hand. Uh, I, I agree with him. There are many people up there that have good intentions, and we have a lot of good conversation with them. But there are some that are, I think, pretty exemplary, and this is one of my favorite senators. So let's, let's give you some thanks here.
0: That was Senator Chris Coons and Jim Wallace, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 4, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tricia Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.